trying to do was uh, stress the importance of data to the organization and how critical it was and something that he wanted to pay first-hand attention to. But for those who know Steve Ballmer, it was more like, this is too important to delegate to anyone. Welcome to another episode of Data Masters. Today's guest is Randy Bean. Randy Bean is an industry thought leader, author, and speaker in the field of data-driven business leadership. He's the founder and CEO of New Vantage Partners, a strategic advisory firm to Fortune 1000 clients, which he founded in 2001. He's known for his frequent columns in Forbes, Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, and the Wall Street Journal. His new book, Fail Fast, Learn Faster, Lessons in Data-Driven Leadership in the Age of Disruption, Big Data, and AI, which we'll discuss today, was published in August. As we'll learn, Randy is a lifelong lover of literature. He serves as the co-chair of the James Merrill House, an internationally acclaimed writer's residence program based in Stonington Borough, Connecticut, which hosts award-winning writers, including recipients of the Pulitzer Prize, Booker Award, National Book Award, and the 2020 recipient of the Nobel Prize for literature. And maybe most importantly, Randy has a unique distinction as one of the first repeat guests on the Data Masters podcast. Welcome back, Randy. I look forward to discussing your new book. Anthony, thank you. And thank you to Tamer for hosting me again. It's always a pleasure. So I love the title of the new book, Fail Fast, Learn Faster. Um, so maybe share, uh, you know, titles in books are always uh, a difficult process. Why, why did you choose uh, to name your book this way? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, Fail Fast, Learn Faster is really intended as a metaphor for a number of things in the data space. It's meant for taking action, you know, as opposed to analysis paralysis. In the case of analytics, it's a metaphor for test and learn. But above all, it's a metaphor for, for changing and evolution. You know, the, I borrowed the title from the Irish playwright, uh, Samuel Beckett, who's uh, most known for writing the play, uh, Waiting for Godot. And the quote was, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And just as an example of uh, other uses of this, uh, Paul Sappho, the uh, prognosticator, has said, failure is the foundation of innovation. And Facebook is well known for their mantra, move fast and break things. So it was really an idea of bringing together all of these ideas in the context of using data as um, a, a, a means for change and evolution and helping organizations uh, use data to gain insight and leadership. Yeah, that's that's great, and I mean, you, you can see uh, these themes about uh, the the link between moving forward and learning and failure. Uh, as you point out, these are literary themes as much as themes in business. Um, so maybe share, uh, you know, with that as a backdrop and and this idea of uh, learning. Um, 
maybe give uh, listeners a, a brief synopsis uh, about what the book's about. Entice them to, to head over to Amazon.com and, and place a pre-order. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, um, in, in a way, it's all about storytelling. And what metaphors do is provide a, a, an example that help people uh, give them a concrete sense rather than writing something in, in too technical a language. So what I tried to write the, do was write the book for uh, three different audiences. First of all, senior business executives, these may be uh, C-suite executives or board members. Secondly, I tried to write it for practitioners, and, and I did that by providing uh, numerous case studies. There's roughly 25 case studies drawn from articles and conversations that I've had with Fortune 1000 organizations over the years. And then the third constituency is general readers who, uh, particularly more recently in the period of COVID, started hearing about data dashboards and the rush to accelerate development of vaccines. And this notion of uh, bringing to data, together data from all of these different sources, you know, we're only two decades removed from Moneyball, which was really the concept of bringing data to, to professional sports. So what I was really trying to do is apply some metaphors that made this concept of becoming data-driven uh, relevant to um, uh, any audience. And really the theme of the book, it's based upon my generation of experience in the data industry during the information revolution. <clears throat> and looking back from what I've learned from that experience and looking to the future going forward. So I talk about uh, how information has evolved, how it's proliferated at ever increasing rates over the past several decades. I talk about the change in mindset, why organizations need to think different in terms of becoming data-driven. I talk about the cultural challenges that organizations need to undertake. It's really, for most organizations, not so much about technology barriers, but human barriers and business processes. And I can talk a little bit more about that. I discussed the evolving role of the chief data officer, something that didn't really exist a decade ago, and how it uh, symbolizes the commitment of major organizations to uh, bring data to the uh, C-suite. And then I also talk about um, ethics, data ethics, which is, uh, you know, some people have asked me what's my favorite chapter in the book, and I say it's the one about data ethics, because they say some of the use cases about successes are inspiring, but reading about the potential misuses of data is terrifying. And then I try to wrap up the book talking about um, data-driven artificial intelligence as uh, what's coming in the years and decades ahead, and I conclude with uh, a single long case study, which happens to be the story of American Express, an organization that I've worked with extensively over the past 20 years and written about on multiple occasions and really tell their stories, uh, which goes through their, their attempts, their failures, how they learned from failures, how they undertook new initiatives. So they really embody the fail fast, learn faster metaphor. And as you point out, uh, you've had a long career uh, in the industry and you've seen many things. Is there a particular reason that you wrote the book now? I mean, it, it, how much of this was uh, you know, being uh, holed up uh, in your house, uh, stuck uh, <laughs> uh, because of COVID? And, and how much of that is a, a function of you know, where you sit uh, uh, in the long arc of history? Uh, yes, that's a great question. Well, first of all, um, looking 
last November when the publisher reached out at a long cold winter with no place to go. It seemed like if ever there was a time to write a book, that was the moment. Um, and plus, you know, having experienced a, a generation, I certainly had a perspective and a point of view, you know, you can call it a, a witness to history. It may not be the uh, French Revolution or the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but for our time, it's, it's pretty relevant. And maybe I could start by reading uh, a few opening lines for the book, which speak directly to your question about now. So the book begins, the world is in a race to become data-driven now more than ever. The warp speed effort to organize scientific and epi epidemiological data from across the globe in a heroic effort to find a COVID-19 vaccine has illustrated the urgency and existential nature of this quest. We need data, science, facts, knowledge, and insight to make informed, wise, and critical decisions. Now more than ever, data matters, and having good data matters tremendously. Uh, so, uh, you know, absolutely. And I think that that uh, that way of launching the book is exactly the, the point. And, and, and just sort of tying two ideas together, you'd, you'd said, uh, you know, you had this front seat to the information revolution. You've had a long career looking at how data and information have transformed businesses. Um, and in that way, I think the book is um, a really fun read because you, you, as you point out, you have a lot of these sort of personal stories embedded in the book, which capture these sort of big moments of change. Um, you, know, you know, I'm a big believer that change isn't linear. It happens with these big disruptive moments that, that force change onto people without, uh, and, and they're very easy to see in retrospect and hard to see in the moment. Uh, and, and again, your book does a wonderful job of capturing those moments and, and sharing them in a really um, in a really lovely way. But maybe you could share uh, with the audience uh, one or two of your favorite personal anecdotes that, that you shared in the book. Yeah, thank you for asking, Anthony. Um, yeah, you know, for me, it's always about stories. And, you know, I, I gave a copy of the book for my son to read. And he said, oh, well, you know, how come you didn't have those stories about the time you went to lunch and you uh, spilled ketchup on your shirt before you met with the CEO of Bank of America? Those type of stories. And I said, well, you know, uh, some stories are more apt than, than others. But there's uh, one story I allude to in the beginning of the book and another story that I uh, go into more extensively at the end of the book. And the first story is, um, it was in, uh, it was about 1996 and I was um, running the data, uh, North American database marketing practice for, for a company in the database marketing space, which would now be known as CRM. And I got a call from uh, Microsoft in Redmond, Washington, and they said, uh, you know, we uh, think it's really important to have an understanding of our data so we can understand our customers and the totality of our customer relationships and identify ways to better retain and serve those customers. And we'd like it if you could come out and meet with um, a couple of our executives here who have an interest in that. And I said, sure, I, I would be happy to, um, you know, I have some time uh, next week or the following week, if that works for you. And they said, no, we were, we were thinking this afternoon. <laughs> and, you know, I um, had two young kids at the time, so it'd be kind of disruptive. But I talked to my wife and said, um, you know, I, I, I have a hunch that this might be uh, worthwhile, so I'm going to do it. So I uh, purchased the ticket. You know, this was back when things were easier. <laughs> In uh, prior to 2001, 
and uh, flew to Redmond, Washington, uh, flew to Seattle and traveled up to Redmond, Washington. I walked into the room and uh, who was sitting there but Steve Ballmer. And for those who know of Steve Ballmer, it's, uh, well, what he was trying to do was uh, stress the importance of data to the organization and how critical it was and something that he wanted to pay firsthand attention to. But for those who know Steve Ballmer, it was more like, this is too important to delegate to anyone. Um, and so it was a great experience, and he was a gentleman all the all the time. But he was uh, energetic and passionate, and this was a priority for Microsoft. Another story is uh, it was about eight or nine years ago when I picked up a college alumni magazine, and happened to see that an old college housemate of mine had been appointed uh, assistant secretary of defense for research and development with something like a trillion dollar budget or some extraordinary sum. And among the uh, mandates that were listed for him was that he was uh, had oversight for looking at ways that the Pentagon could leverage big data and their initiatives. So I uh, reached out to him. It took me a while to figure out what the email address was for um, the Pentagon. But when I when I finally got it right, I was surprised to hear back with him back from him within a few hours. And he said, well, it's really interesting, the work that you're doing in big data. Can you come to the uh, Pentagon next week to meet with uh, a group of individuals here? And maybe share with us what organizations are doing in private industry. So uh, the following week, I traveled down to the Pentagon, uh, been to the Pentagon on the outside, never been on the inside, uh, went through layers of security that confiscated everything that I possibly had on me. I think even my wedding ring, I believe. And um, walked into this room and there was about 18 people and six of them had on full uh, stars and bars, I guess you'd call it, you know, more medals than I'd ever seen. Another half dozen had on camouflage fatigues and another half were in, or the other third were in uh, full suit and ties. And I had no idea who the decision makers were, but they started talking about um, capturing data and analyzing data and using it for campaigns. You know, I was used to dealing with American Express, so I was thinking marketing campaigns increase the customer retention, customer lift. I soon learned they were talking about military campaigns and specifically they were talking about planning for drone strikes. And so the uh, quality of the data mattered significantly. And, you know, what they shared was they were spending 80% of their time preparing the data and 20% of their time analyzing the data. And they wanted to know how in private industry, private industry had figured it out. So there was a much higher proportion of time spent on the analysis as opposed to the preparation. And I had to disabuse them of their notion that uh, private industry had any magic bullets or, or a better approach. And it was really pretty analogous in terms of the amount of time spent on data preparation. And, you know, that ties in nicely with the work that Tamer does. Of course. No, so campaigns of a different type, uh, <laughs> maybe a little higher stakes. So um, my, my understanding is that one of the motivations for writing uh, Fail Fast, Learn Faster was to kind of reflect on and in a sense, you know, document the many decades of experience uh, the, and work that you've had. Um, and a lot of people listening to the podcast are just starting their careers or earlier in their career. And uh, you know, with, with the benefit of some experience, the ability to reflect, uh, what advice would you give somebody starting their career in data today? 
Well, I think data is the career of the future. So that's the uh, good news. You know, we conduct an annual survey of uh, C executives, CIOs, chief data officers, chief analytics officers, chief digital officers. And I'm going to share some of the findings because this may sound like a glass that's half empty, but it actually represents an opportunity. So we asked how many organizations are driving innovation with data? And the answer was 48.5%, so less than half. How many are managing data as a business asset today? The answer was 39.3%, so barely over a third. How many had forged a data culture? 24.4%, so not even a quarter. And how many had created the data-driven organization? Only 24%. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that there's a lot of work to be done. And one of the things that I'm asked most frequently is, uh, how do we know when we've uh, become data-driven or created a data culture? And you know, my answer is, is that it's not a destination, it's a journey and it's a perpetual journey. And from my experience, the organizations that are most successful and are closest to being data-driven are those that have a relentless drive to improve. They're never satisfied. They're always looking over their shoulders. They're always worried about the competition. When I go into an organization and they say, you know, we've got things under control, we've got it figured out. You know, those are the organizations that I sincerely worry about. So for young people entering the field, I, I think this is the field of the next uh, decades, the next generation, the volumes of data are only proliferating. Organizations are struggling to understand and manage these different types of data. So there's gonna be a lot of work. And I think uh, data is going to uh, permeate all aspects of society in terms of making more informed decision-making. It doesn't mean that you have to be a robot and just blindly follow what the data says, but it does mean that the more you consult the data that you have and combine it with human judgment and experience, most likely the better off you're going to be. So one thing I, I didn't know about you uh, prior to reading the book and, and spending time with you was uh, your intense love of literature, obviously something you do uh, in some of your uh, work outside of work. Um, you, when we talked before the episode, you told me about a lot of the great authors and their works that are central to the book. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the connection between literature and, and the book. Uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, I believe that telling a story is important because you're trying to reach an audience and you're trying to uh, really break through to that audience to, to develop an understanding. And from my experience, one of the ways that you can achieve it, aside from storytelling, is employing literary devices. So that's why, you know, for example, in the title, use the uh, fail fast, learn faster metaphor, borrowing from uh, Samuel Beckett. Uh, you know, at first I was debating what the title should be because I was focusing on this notion of a different mindset to become data driven. And so for each of the chapters, I borrow from uh, a, a different quote to start off the chapters. And so, for example, chapter two, which is the well, ch chapter one, which tells the history of big data. It starts with a quote from uh, the philosopher George Santayana that say those who uh, don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it, which seems to strike home every day in one form or another. Uh, but chapter two is the chapter about thinking uh, different, and it starts off, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently, 
they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. And in other cases, uh, I have the chapter on data science and facts. So I use this little quote from Mark Twain. He says, lies, damn lies, and statistics, <laughs> which is uh, pretty funny because data can be used to support just about any argument. And then I have a chapter on uh, innovation and disruption. And I borrow this quote from Ernest Hemingway from his uh, classic book, The Sun Also Rises. One of the characters asks, how did you go bankrupt? And the other character responds two ways, gradually and then suddenly, which is really a perfect metaphor for disruptive change because um, often you, you, you can't time it. So people say, oh, you know, we're, we're fine. We have this great customer base. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to this and we'll deal with this over time. And some things think, sometimes things change in the dime and that's how things are. And then uh, lastly, I'll mention the chapter on uh, data-driven AI. I found this nice quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he says, I hope, th I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you see things you've never felt before. So all of this is meant to give kind of an allure to, uh, you know, maybe a little bit drier content that comprises each chapter. Sure. And uh, so I have to admit, uh, you know, Waiting for Godot is one of, uh, certainly one of my favorite uh, plays. And, and uh, it's a strange play because really the story has very little plot, very little actually happens. But in a way, it, it's a commentary on uh, this idea that as, as humans, we are what we do. Our choices and actions are define our, our place in the world. And one of the things I really love about the book is this very action-oriented nature of it, this idea that the uh, data sitting at rest is not that useful or interesting. It's what you do with it and, and the, the hypotheses you, you uh, run and test and the actions that you take as a result. Uh, so I, I would highly encourage the book to all of our listeners. And uh, you, know, you should uh, decidedly not be like the characters in Waiting for Godot and do nothing. You should uh, run out and uh, pick it up and give it a read. So, Randy, thanks for joining us on Data Masters. Uh, Anthony, it's always a pleasure. Uh, I always enjoy working with yourself and the entire team, Andy Palmer, uh, on down at, at TAMER. You're a great organization.